Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Science Yale Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Kartik Cannon, co-founder and CTO of Envision, to talk about tools for the visually impaired. Kartik, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Heather. And nice to join a lineup of uh, other really cool scientists that you had in your podcast. You know, scientists, founders, you know, people in AI. So glad to be here. Well, I'm definitely happy to talk to you. Kartik, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Envision? Sure. So I really don't have a very academic background when it comes to, you know, a deep learning or or AI in general or ML. I've been pretty much, you could say, a hacker slash developer in this space since 2015, 2016. So before that, I was, you know, I would broadly classify myself as a programmer, not specifically, you know, uh, really, I wasn't into any particular piece of tech. I just started writing code very early, you know, in my early teens, mostly, you know, like most kids who got into programming at that time, it was to make games. So I just, you know, was fascinated with games and, you know, I just, you know, had asked my dad how people make games and he said they write code. And then he put me on to a programming class. And that's how I got started with writing code. And when I finished my college, I started working with startups primarily in backend engineering, backend development. And I didn't go on to do my master's or anything. I just did my bachelor's, just started working directly because I was more eager to get my hands dirty into making software and stuff. So the way I got into ML, it was in 2014, 2015. I was really into machine learning when I was in college as well as this was back in 2011, 2012. But back then, machine learning was more manipulating tabular data. It was using Scikit and, you know, those were the very rudimentary tools. And I've been following the space ever since. And it was in 2015, 2016 that I started to get to know about what was happening in deep learning, you know, the whole AlexNet moment that computer vision had was the sort of the starting point for me. So I was very involved in the early, you know, year, you know, days of machine learning when Tiano was the most popular deep learning library and and so on. And in 2016, 2017 is when, you know, me and my co-founder, we started to really, you know, seriously take a look at how computer vision would help people with a visual impairment to live more independently. And that was because, you know, me and my co-founder, we had actually gone to a blind school in India to talk to kids about what it is to be a designer, what it is to be an engineer. And the conversation that you know, I had with the kids then was sort of a direct triggering point for starting Envision. So it's a pretty, I would say, roundabout journey. But, you know, somewhere I've, you know, always been involved in tech. So, you know, machine learning was naturally on my radar from a very early time. Yeah. So what does Envision do? So Envision helps people with a visual impairment to live more independently using computer vision so we built Envision Glasses, basically a smart glasses that helps people with a visual impairment by helping them read text around them, recognize faces, recognize objects, and so much more. The glasses have a camera on them, and we've got computer vision models that run directly on the glasses, but also on the cloud. And a visually impaired user could just wear the glasses, could, for example, be sitting at a restaurant and you know very quickly ask the glasses to scan a menu card for them. And the glasses would scan the menu card, go ahead and read it out to them and very recently we started you know putting together 
all the cool stuff that's happening in the space of LLMs and computer vision together. So now not only can a visually impaired person sit and you know, scan a piece of text, they could also ask questions of that piece of text and so on and so forth with, with LLM. So essentially, Envision builds tools, you know, like in the Envision glasses, which has a camera and uses computer vision to kind of translate the visual world into audio. We also have the Envision app, which is an app that, you know, that is available for free for users across the world that does things that are similar to the Envision glasses, but in the form factor of a smartphone app, right? So these are the two things that Envision does. But overarching theme is to constantly look at how we can translate the advances in computer vision and broadly AI into tools that can help a visually impaired person lead a more independent life. So it definitely sounds like computer vision and machine learning are are essential in in these glasses. And you mentioned some of the tasks that they perform. How do you gather data for this? How do you set up model training using that data? Yeah, it's a good question because a lot of times, one thing that I've always, that has You know, ever since we started working in the computer vision for accessibility space or AI for accessibility space, I've always noticed that the open data sets that are available today aren't inclusive in the sense they don't capture data from, say, a visually impaired person's perspective, right? If you look at, say, for if you pick any image in an open data set like ImageNet or open images or whatever, right, you often find a perfectly framed photograph of the object. So you have, you know, the background and you have a, a you know, the object pretty much in the center of the image. And then you have, you know, it's a very well taken photograph in most of the times, which kind of shows that it was taken by a sighted person. But then what we realized was when we take these, you know, when we take models that are trained on these open, you know, data sets and then put them to use within, you know, our particular use case, it doesn't often fare well because, you know, we don't have images captured from a visually impaired person's perspective. So, in the very early days of Envision, when we didn't kind of we didn't have the scale at which Envision you know operates right now, we used to often go ahead and work with beta testers very closely in the Netherlands. Sometimes we would pay them to go ahead and help us you know like collect data from the images that they've been capturing. So in the beginning, it was largely a small group of beta testers that used to collect the data for us. But right now, what we do is when someone installs the Envision app or the Envision glasses, we have an opt out by default setup in place where users can explicitly, you know, have to explicitly opt in in order to go ahead and share data with us. So we do use some data that we capture from end users right now to be able to train our models. And the way we set up model training, it's again, quite basic. We have a pretty standard data collection pipeline. And over the course of the last couple of years, we've actually worked on automating, especially for some things like object detection. We've worked on automating the entire training pipeline as well, where we have our own, you know, where we have data that's collected and we split the training and the validation sets and then, you know, automatically, and then we train models, we benchmark them when we create, you know, new private beta builds of new versions of the models. And those are sent to a a small group of internal testers. So we get both, you know, human feedback and, you know, benchmarks that we run internally to see if the new versions of the model that we're pushing are, you know, working better or, you know, if there are new classes that we're adding, we use these benchmarks to ensure that they're going fine. So it's a, you know, in terms of the training pipeline, it's pretty standard, you know, training pipeline that we follow, like in most cases of training computer vision models. But the fact that, you know, we mix both data from open, you know, data sets, plus we, you know, throw in a healthy mix of, you know, data that's captured from a visually impaired person's perspective. That's what makes the whole data collection and cleaning process quite unique at Envision. 
So you mentioned a couple of the different features on these glasses with you know reading text, recognizing objects. How does your team plan and develop a new machine learning feature? What steps do you go through in that process? Yeah. So the first kind of realization that we had was the fact that, you know, we aren't users of the product. And, you know, when I say we, it's most of the people at Envision are cited. We do have employees who are visually impaired and, you know, they have a lot of input into our product development process in the sense they they tend to suggest features, you know, internally because they're like heavy users of the product themselves, right? So understanding from the very beginning when it was just me and my co-founder was the fact that since we're not users of the final product, we cannot make assumptions on their behalf and go about building things. And in the times when we actually went ahead and did that, it often turned out to be quite incorrect. And I mean, in the very beginning, in the early days of Envision, we had two features on the Envision app when it was still a very, very early prototype. One was reading text and the other was providing, you know, natural language captions of an image. Now, as a sighted person, for me, naturally, the more exciting thing to work on was the natural language captioning of images. I was like, oh, wow, if I was someone who's visually impaired, I just want to take pictures of things around me and get descriptions of what the images are. And we put inordinate amount of time, an obscene amount of time just trying to improve that particular model. But when we actually started releasing the app to more and more people, we saw that, you know, people didn't give two hoots about the whole, you know, captioning stuff. They were really focused on reading text. And after talking to a few users, we realized that it makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, pretty much everything around you is just text and it's all in forms of text, you know, product packaging, stuff that's on a computer screen, you know, like words that are there on, on a piece of you know paper. All of them are text and we're surrounded by text of different font types and sizes and so on, on, on and on different types of backgrounds, like printed backgrounds, digital backgrounds. So we realized reading text once we started showing it to more people, was the more important feature and not the whole captioning stuff, which to them felt more gimmicky than an actual feature they could use. So since then, the process that we follow, which is right now is quite refined, is every couple of months, we have something called the Envisioner's Day. So it sounds a little bit like a music festival because it is almost like a festival of sorts where we invite, you know, Envisioned users from different walks of life, you know, different age groups. We put out an open call saying, hey, we're going to have an Envisioner's Day and, you know, we would love to invite you over to the office. So if you're in the Netherlands, if you can make it to the Netherlands, we'd be more than happy to have you over. So we try and get around 20, 25 people from different age groups, different levels of technology savviness and we have them come to the office and it's an entire day we spent you know the an entire day with them and what we do is we break these you know people into little cohorts and you know of like three or four people and we put them together in a room with a machine learning engineer and a designer so you know the machine learning guy and a person and then there is the designer and then there are three or four people and what tends to happen there is that the designer and the ml you know dev along with these users test out the models that we are working on in real time you know with the user so we you know hand them a pair of glasses let's say we are working on a new document detection model to detect documents more easily when a person is holding them in front of the glasses right so at that point in time you know we'd be in the room and you know, I'd be sitting around the table the glasses would be connected to a laptop and then the ML engineer would in real time see how the model is performing when someone is using the glasses. The designer, you know, will have notes on how they can improve the UX of how the model is implemented. And for example, if the users feel that, hey, you know what, 
this is not accurate enough. Then we have two, three different versions of the model that are trained. And then the engineer just immediately swaps out the model. And then we test with maybe a more accurate one. Or if it's too slow, then maybe we try out, you know, ways to increase the frame rate. So almost this kind of, it's a weird kind of pair programming, you can say, with all of the users, with the designer, with the engineer sitting and everyone's tweaking the model. And we finally come to an understanding of, okay, is this something that works for the end user or not. And we also use this time to test out some very experimental features. Like, you know, we've been working a lot on visual question answering and we often throw ideas at the testers on that day, just asking them, hey, would this be interesting to you? Or what do you like about this particular feature? So it's a conversation that we have with a small group of people, different walks of life. And also broadly, we constantly have this conversation with the community. So we have our own internal communities. We are very, very active on Twitter where a lot of visually impaired people are there. We are active on pretty much all the online forums that you can think of. So it's constantly being in touch with the community and then developing intuitions on where the product should go next and validating those intuitions once again with the community and all these different channels. So it's a pretty elaborate process that we have now. Yeah. So the users might suggest new features that you haven't even thought of, and maybe you spend a couple months developing that and that the, the next demo day, you're able to show that to them and get some feedback. Is that part of this as well? Yeah, it is part of that as well. And sometimes, you know, we ourselves actually, you know, think of a feature and be like, hey, is this something that would be interesting for you? And then, you know, we usually ask that question to some of the internal like employees of Envision saying, would that be interesting for you? So yeah, at this point, it's sometimes, you know, when I think of certain features within the Envision classes, the Envision app, it's hard to pin down the origin of those features, but the ones that have stuck the most with the customers and the, like with the users have often been ones that have come directly from them or, you know, things that we have thought of that would be interesting and we validate that. So that whole process of validation is extremely, extremely important because we are not direct users of the product ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That continuous feedback, I can certainly see that's essential. And especially when you're not the user of the product again. You need, you need that feedback. So what comes next in development? You, you have a feature, you know that it's useful, you know that there's a use case for it, but you haven't developed it much yet. You don't really know where to start. Maybe it's something a little different than you've done before. What process do you go through with your internal team to figure out how to implement it? What algorithms to use? Is there research involved there? Yeah. So the way it happens is once we have like an idea of, uh, hey, this is how we want to actually go about doing it. The first step is always, you know, the actual design or the user experience, right? And so the design team and also the engineering, like actually the design team sits down, really comes up with what could be a potential set of user experiences, right? So maybe they don't come up with just one, maybe they come up with, you know, two or three of them. And the next step is, of course, you know, trying to validate those by having conversations with end customers, you know, trying to, you know, use our sense of intuition with like how we have built the product so far to figure out, okay, this could be a possible use case, or this could be a possible, you know, way to implement this particular feature. And we start, you know, discussing that with the customers. And once we know this is the exact, the way we want to implement it, that's when the engineering team really steps in the machine learning, the computer vision team really steps in at that point. And what they do is we look at what constraints we have to work with first, right? For example, does this feature have to run offline on the glasses or can it run online? Is it something that 
needs to work in real time or does it just work on static images what part of the whole feature pipeline is the machine learning model involved in and then we often ask ourselves this very important question can we solve this using traditional computer vision techniques or do we need deep learning to solve this problem so there are these list of constraints that we come up with right and we decide based on those constraints what approach do we actually take and let's say you know if a model needs to be implemented completely offline and needs to work real time then we already have some directions in which the computer vision team will start doing their research in and then it's a process of just giving them the space to say okay you know what take a month or two if required and then let's look at all the possible ways that we can implement this within these set of constraints and this is actually the most exciting part for me because then we just go you know like crazy and look at all the research that's happening in the space and it's also a time of just building simple proof of concepts on like creating like a hugging face spaces for example or just making a simple gradient implementation just sending the links over to the design team and having them test it out and then give us feedback and doing a lot of what is called wizard of oz testing where you know you kind of simulate how the the end user experience is going to be with just a simple web interface and so on so this is a time when we actually build a lot of proof of concepts and we present these proof of concepts we have like a you know biweekly sprint or a biweekly kind of catch up with the whole design team and the, and the ai team and the platform team that's working so it's like a big group of people just playing around with a bunch of different demos and then deciding that okay this is the direction that we want to go in right so you know the research and the proof of concept stage comes after that and then by the time we're done with the whole proof of concept stage where we figure out based on the constraints this is the exact type of model architecture that we're going to use this is how we're going to go about you know this is the data that we already have this is the data that we don't have it's then we go about you know collecting the data if there is data that's missing or then we get into the whole training process if we already have the data we just get into training and once the training part is done what we usually do is we have a set of i would say skeleton apps for different use cases so if, for example if it's a model that needs to run real time on the glasses we have some standard skeleton apps a little internal sdk that we have built to run different types of machine learning models on the glasses and on the app on device or on the cloud and then we go about working to build a first version of the feature itself and from that point on it's more of a regular software development process with heavy input from the machine learning team and the design team and so we work together and that usually takes about few weeks you know if everything goes fairly smoothly and then comes an iterative process of just testing with the users over and over and over again so if it's a feature that we're working on from scratch where there is some amount of i would say research already done in that space and if there's some indications on how we can solve the problem and and those indications are available in open source or you know if there's been papers published about it then it takes us you know about 2 to 3 months to be able to go from just an idea to you know an implementation but if it's something that is really you know i would say if it's a huge leap ahead then it usually takes us a good 6 to 8 months to be able to like you know like to explore and to do our research and to be able to you know deliver that as a final you know feature so it really depends a lot the time scales really depend on how solved the problem is in the public domain and how much do we you know add and contribute to it and where do we need to actually do our research you know 
So I imagine one of the challenges in creating features that work and creating models that work on this data is just the diversity of things that the glasses need to deal with. So how do you ensure that your models perform well across many different users and environments? Yeah, this is actually, yes, the most challenging aspect of it, because if you're a sighted person, you know that, you know, like, for example, we have something called layout detection on the glasses where, you know, it helps you, you know, read a document once it detects the layout. So if you send it a letter, which is just the usual left to right reading reading order, then, you know, it just reads it from the, it understands it's a letter and then reads it from left to right. And then if you send it, for example, you know, a magazine article where you have columns and you need to read it from, you know, one column to another and not just the blind left to right reading method. So these are instances where we don't know what kind of data we're going to get. And what we do a lot is, again, because we're so, so clued into the community, anytime we put out any of these new features, it usually takes, you know, weeks of testing. And when I say testing, it's like, we have three or four different WhatsApp groups and we have one Telegram group. We have, a, you know, a group, you know, for, we have an online forum and we constantly solicit feedback from customers and whenever we encounter a case where the model doesn't perform well we usually go ahead and ask users to share data with us or we constantly also benchmark the beta testers data against the model and see where it's performing where it's not performing so it's a lot of iterative testing and it's just pure grunt work you know and for example the layout detection feature that i just told you about that took us almost two and a half months of testing just, you know, this whole feedback, the process of like finding outlier documents where it wasn't working, where it's not working. But even before that, what we did a lot of work on is to talk to users and look at existing data and see what type of documents, what type of languages are people reading? Are people reading more like, you know, non-Latin scripts? So then the algorithm needs to be tweaked to work better with non-Latin scripts. So we take a look at the data itself already, but we also do a lot of, you know, I would say conversations with users and it's an iterative process. Even sometimes after the feature is released, we encounter data, uh, we encounter users saying, hey, it's not working very well in this particular scenario. So then we actually go ahead and, you know, collect data to, to like make the model work a little bit better with that scenario. If we think that a particular scenario is an outlier, then we suggest workarounds to customers when they're using the model. So it's a very human, you know, feedback intensive process right now for us. Why is now the right time to build this? Are, are there specific technical challenges that made it possible to do this now when it wouldn't have been feasible a few years ago? Yeah, definitely. I think in 2020 is when we first sort of launched the Envision classes. And even before that, we have been looking at smart classes. I think since the time we launched the Envision app in 2018, which we've been looking at smart classes because for someone who's visually impaired holding a phone in one hand and a cane or a guide dog in the other hand and pointing their phone around is it's not a great user experience so the one particular trend that sort of started which really helped us a lot was the fact that you know mobile hardware was getting pretty powerful especially for example the current hardware that is there on the google glass which is the hardware that we use to build the envision glasses platform you know the xr1 chip that was the Snapdragon XR1 chip that got launched in 2018 with all its you know bells and whistles that really help us run you know machine learning models very efficiently on device. That particular trend needed to happen before we could actually go ahead and work on the Envision glasses. So I see that trend you know kind of 
hopefully accelerating in the future with the big ones like Apple and Google also jumping into this, building more mainstream MR, AR glasses. I'm hoping that, you know, the trend of having better processors on these glasses continues. And that is one reason why I think it's now is the right moment for us to build Envision. Second key thing has been this huge, huge explosion that's recently happened in the computer vision space, especially in building more models that are privacy conscious. So since, you know, the whole privacy conscious movement has started, you know, within the whole machine learning community, there's been such great work done to bring more model architectures that work on device. And every year we see some new benchmark being, you know, broken when it comes to that particular, you know, part of the machine learning community, right? The fact that we can actually go ahead and have better models run more efficiently and on device, which is really great for privacy overall. And in our use case, it makes so much sense. That particular trend has been really accelerating. And one trend that has started very recently over the last six to eight months has been the growth of large language models and broadly multimodal models. Because for example, with something like image or GPT-4 that we have like early access to, you know, we get such incredibly rich captions of an environment and users can actually ask questions of their environment. So people can just take a picture and then not only do they get a really rich description of the picture, they can also ask questions like, oh, can you tell me, you know, what does the floor look like? Or can you tell me, can you give me a description of the person standing, you know, in front of me? So the whole multimodal aspect along with large language model, the stuff that's been happening there has been really positive. And hopefully Envision, uh, we're looking to launch a couple of features that have been in the works for quite some time that has accelerated because of this whole multimodal improvement. Hopefully we're going to see some of that come out into the hands of people. Yeah. Thinking more broadly about your goals at Envision, how do you measure the impact of your technology? So there's no like a clear, I would say, of course, there's, you know, the one KPI is, is or one, you know, impact, one way we measure impact is just how many people tend to use Envision. The more we're able to, you know, increase that, the more we know there is an impact because every single user of the Envision app or the Envision glasses is a visually impaired person who's using our product to enable more independence. I think for me, that's sort of, you know, the high level numbers way of looking at it. But, uh, you know, within the Envision team, in our internal Slack, there is a channel called happy users and the way i look at that channel is that it needs to get so spammy you know that our employees have to mute that channel in order to do their to go about their day that's one personal goal of mine because every time you know someone sees a story of a user of envision share you know like uh, somewhere on the internet they go ahead and take a screenshot of it or they copy it and they put it in the happy users channel so it's a constant stream of you know envision employees seeing users build it, using the product all over the web and then putting it onto the Slack channel. So that's how we measure impact. It's just, you know, purely with the user stories that we see and the fact that, you know, as we continue to grow as a, as a company, as we continue to grow as a product, every single person who is, you know, a number on a dashboard is actually a person who's using, you know, the product to improve their independence. So it's, it's as simple as that. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? 
Hmm. Yeah, I think there is a lot of chatter right now with, you know, companies feeling a little bit off with the fact that, hey, you know, with the tool as powerful as GPT, you know, how relevant are, is, is the work that I'm going to be doing in the near future or how relevant are my products going to be if it can eventually be replaced by a large language model, so on and so forth. I think companies that are working in this space, in the AI space right now, the most important thing is to try and understand where or have a very clear idea as to what kind of an impact is AI making on your customers and to double down on that, you know. So in our case, the way I see it is that, you know, computer vision is quite central to helping a visually impaired person live more independently. And so any and all advances that happen in this space, we go ahead and, you know, we're able to utilize or look at it in that direction. I think another piece of advice would be to have a more, especially if it's a B2C company that's been doing this, is to have a more, I would say, is to assume less when building these, you know, these AI features and to work more closely with customers and to involve designers in the process of building these AI features from pretty much the very beginning, because so much of the AI features that we have worked on at Envision has largely been shaped by the designers who also, you know, that we work with and because they tend to be the ones setting the constraints on how the feature should be implemented and that, and we work backwards from there to the point where how the model gets built or what architectures that we use. So yeah, these are the, the two broad things that I would say. And finally, where do you see the impact of Envision in three to five years? I would love for Envision to be, you know, hopefully in the hands of millions of people because the app is free and hopefully the glasses will get a much wider adoption. I think, you know, for me, at least a million people using it across the world would be incredible. But I think broadly speaking, right now we're starting, you know, with uh, right now our products are built for people with a visual impairment. But what we're also constantly seeing is how the work we're doing at Envision can also have an impact on people with other disabilities, other visual disabilities or other cognitive disabilities. For example, you know, I think Envision could be really good for someone who has dementia or uh, Envision could be really useful for someone with dyslexia. So we hopefully would have branched out from the visually impaired community to also help people with other visual disabilities or people who are typically on the whole visual impairment spectrum. So that's another aim of mine. And that's where I hope to see Envision go in the next three to five years. This has been great. Kartik, your team at Envision is doing some really interesting work for the visually impaired. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? So people can find out about us mostly through our website. You can go to letsenvision.com. That's L-E-T-S-E-N-V-I-S-I-O-N.com. And you can find more information about us there. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Heather. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people in planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.